Hi, I want to tell you about a new free PDF ebook that's available now from Value Capture. It's titled A Playbook for Habitual Excellence, a Leader's Roadmap from the Life and Work of Paul H. O'Neill Sr. So this ebook is a compilation of speeches and remarks given by Mr. O'Neill. I think it's really inspiring how he lays out a pathway for habitual excellence. You could call it a roadmap. You could call it a playbook. I think it's really powerful, and I invite you to check it out. You can go to www.valuecapturellc.com slash playbook. Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast and our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. This episode was recorded on May 18th, 2020. Well, hi, welcome to the Habitual Excellence Podcast. I'm Mark Raven. We're joined today by Steve Spear. Steve, how are you? I'm doing great. Good afternoon. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Can you tell the audience, uh, the viewers, uh, a little bit about what you do? Um, you do a lot of things. Yeah, thank you. So um, by affiliation, I've, uh, I'm on the faculty at MIT in the Sloan School, have an advisory practice called uh, The High Velocity Edge, which is the same title as my book. Um, more generally, I think my career has, uh, converged to the singularity of advocating for the scientific method and, uh, unpacking that a little bit. Um, my work started 20, 30 years ago, trying to understand why there were some organizations, Toyota in particular, which were just these, uh, fantastic outliers in their ability to harness the, uh, contributions of people towards common purpose, create value. And uh, Toyota was, was and actually still is the standard set, setter in their sector. Mm-hmm. And what we found in looking at Toyota was that um, they had constructed, ideally, all work as a series of nested experiments from which uh, not only did they make the product or deliver the service they wanted, but they were constantly learning uh, whether they succeeded and especially if they failed. And uh, what we've discovered when we looked elsewhere is that other um, anomalous super performers took a similar approach. It was sort of a convergent evolution that uh, even though they may never have collaborated in thinking about their own personal management theory, they came to the same conclusion. And so um, I'd say the last uh, 15, 20 years, I've worked with organizations of um, a fairly broad variety dot uh, com dot edu dot org dot mil uh, trying to uh, look for opportunities to build this very very rich feedback environment by which uh, every day not only you're doing the um, the work that sort of your title or role suggests but also you're creating useful knowledge that has uh, longer term application so yay science. <laughs> It's a good thing, obviously much needed. Um, and, you know, a, a, a part of the approach of uh, Paul O'Neill, you know, the, co- the founder of yeah. Value Capture, um, was an advocate for 
um, you know, problem solving and the scientific method in, in our work and, and so much more. But, you know, as he passed away in um, April, um, you know, in, in his mid 80s, you know, he had been he had left Alcoa where he'd been CEO until 2000. He was in the yep. George W. Bush administration for a year and a half, almost two years as Treasury Secretary. And, you know, a lot of people may have lost track of what he was doing since. And you worked with him. You knew him a long time. So it would be good to hear, you know, some of your stories and reflections on some of those things you collaborated on and and what you learned and and what you'd like to help pass on. Yeah. So let me start with the pass on first. Um, I think, and again, it's a shame. Paul was a national treasure. Uh, I think it's no exaggeration, probably an understatement to say there are tens of thousands of people who lived and are living much better lives than they would have um, because of his influence. And uh, not an exaggeration and probably damning him with faint praise by saying it that way. Um, Paul, to, uh, to really boil down as parsimonious as I can make it, had two key beliefs that I absorbed from him. I think he probably had others and I probably was too dense to absorb them. But the ones I absorbed from Paul were one, that everybody matters. And uh, you don't have the right because of your station in life to dismiss other people as mattering less or mattering differently. And I think probably tightly coupled to his belief that everybody matters. Uh, Paul also had a belief that no matter how good things are or how bad things are, they can be much better if we um, tapped into people's uh, individual and collective ability to uh, discover new, new things and, and, and create answers to longstanding questions and generate solutions to uh, perplexing problems. Um, you know, and just as a quick summary as to uh, why I feel I have right to have such conviction and sort of summarizing them that way, um, I probably met Paul sort of been 20 plus years ago. I was um, completing my studies as a doctoral student trying to unpack or decode Toyota's DNA. And we came to this realization that Toyota was this uh, unique organization or certainly unusual organization that um, viewed its management system as existing to tap into the problem-solving ability of people so they could better meet society's needs. And it happened to be that those needs were transportation needs, but they really viewed their management system and still do as this mechanism for tapping into people's innate potential. And, uh, while we were doing this work with uh, Toyota, Al- Alcoa, under Paul's leadership, was making this uh, real concerted effort to achieve uh, perfect workplace safety. And, and wouldn't you know that the approach they were taking was so um, in concert with uh, Toyota's approach that it created the opportunity for conversation and collaboration. So Paul and I, our relationship goes back to um, – the late 1990s uh, continued while we helped try to stand up the Alcoa business system um, within the company. After his retirement, it extended to his uh, being champion of the um, uh, 
healthcare initiative in the Pittsburgh region, and our relationship continued uh, both uh, during and then after when he was uh, Secretary of the Treasury. So uh, anyway, that's just some background to back up the claims I was making. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, do you, have, do you have some thoughts on, you know, because I've, I've heard different versions of the story, uh, the, the story from different people of how Alcoa had sort of gone on a search to find um, partners to learn from. And it seemed like that turned out being uh, Toyota and um, Harvard Business School and that there were kind of, you know, mutual interests and learning in all directions there. Is that fair to say or what, how would you? Yeah, that? That, that's fair to say. So um, I've had like remarkably good fortune, good luck in, um, I'd say finding mentors. It's not even that. Having people who, for whatever reason, chose to mentor me. And uh, amongst those, you know, certainly uh, I just fell into the opportunity to learn from Clay Christensen for at least a decade. He was on my committee when I was doing my dissertation. Um, He was senior faculty in the same group where I was junior faculty for six years. Um, And uh, he had a huge influence on me. Um, Another guy who, uh, again, just, you know, the dumb coincidence that I happened to be in the right place where he was at the right time. And he decided it was worth his time to uh, develop me as a, as a scholar and a person who was uh, Kent Bowen. Mm-hmm. And just to, you know, give you, you know, some real, put Kent in some perspective. He was uh, brilliant enough early enough to have a full career um, achieve full tenured status at MIT and retire as professor emeriti at MIT, join the Harvard faculty in the business school and have um, a full career long enough to retire as professor emeritus at, at Harvard. Uh, you know, um, guy's freaking brilliant. Yeah. And uh, it turned out that uh, Kent, before he became a management theorist, was uh, one of the world leaders in um, ceramics. I think it was by uh, the coincidence of Kent having a very long-standing relationship with uh, some of the geniuses at Alcoa in the material sciences. Then when we started looking at Toyota, um, connections he had on very different topics became the, um, the doorway for us to start having conversations around management theory too. And it turned out that at Alcoa, there was a guy also uh, a savant, uh, this guy Keith Turnbull. Um, who was curious about this stuff and, you know, by good coincidence was uh, um, Paul O'Neill's emissary um, and representative on these topics. So anyway, that's kind of the, uh, the connections. Yeah. So um, you've featured, or, you know, one of the organizations you featured in your book, The High Velocity Edge was uh, Alcoa. I was wondering what, you know, what are some of the common threads that connect these different organizations like Alcoa and, and Toyota and the U S nuclear Navy. And there, there, yep. there's commonality if you could talk about that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in terms of like nerding out in this, um, you know, unpacking, you know, so, you know, science often starts with uh, trying to explain the anomaly and, uh, the references you just made to Toyota, Alcoa, and uh, the Navy's uh, reactor program are anomalous by enormous means. So let me just uh, qualify, quantify that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Toyota came to the attention of um, 
U.S. managers, U.S. academics, uh, I guess in the mid-80s, when um, after uh, a few years in the U.S. market, they just started grabbing enormous amounts of share and putting the fortunes of the big three in a great predicament. And uh, the reason was quite simple, was that Toyota was able to deliver cars at a far more affordable price uh, with a much higher reliability level than anyone else in the world. And um, in terms of affordability piece, for example, uh, Toyota's productivity was probably double. No matter how you measured it, it was double what was the world standard. So that was one anomaly, and you know, we can go into it. They, they still maintain their anomalous behavior in a very, very difficult competitive sector. Um, Alcoa, you know, the connection there was uh, they were another one of these anomalous um, examples in a very, very different setting, right? So um, heavy industry versus discrete part manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. But what they had done is take these um, industrial processes, which are so hostile to the well-being of human beings. Um, melt point of aluminum is well over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The crush pressure on a, uh, on a die extruding uh, door frames and window frames, you know, who knows how many thousands of pounds per square inch. I mean, these are processes designed in such a way that um, they're completely in, incompatible with human well-being. And yet Alcoa had um, figured out their processes so well that uh, – they were the safest employer in the country, you know, and not like safest heavy industry, you know, of, you know, it wasn't like amongst other people working with molten aluminum or molten metal. They, they were just the safest, safer than libraries, consulting firms, hospitals, et cetera. And then the third um, example you mentioned um, is uh, the U S Navy's reactor program, which um, you start thinking about the proposition. I mean, this is screw it, right? All right. So first of all, Take radioactive material, put it into an engine, all right? Run that engine so it generates, you know, ungodly amounts of electricity. Um, take that same engine, which we all know is difficult enough when you put it on land, put it inside a ship, sink the ship, and have the ship driven around by a crew, which in the day of 100, 150 uh, people on board were all young men. And oh, by the way, don't give them any windows. And, and when I try to impress upon people about how um, cockamamie a proposition it is, I said, you know, if, if you're not at all queasy with the idea of um, men in their late teens, or early 20s, driving around at top speed in a nuclear-powered submarine, go home tonight, hand the keys to your newest car to the, the local teenager and blindfold him. <laughs> and how do you feel about that? So anyway, um, the reason I bring that up is that the Navy, um, that program took uh, the, the idea of nuclear propulsion from just like, oh, that's a good idea. When the science didn't exist, the technology didn't exist. They brought it into practice in this completely anomalous way is that uh, not only did they get, get to market before the Soviet Navy, but um, – since the launch of the USS Nautilus in the mid-50s, the Navy's experience with nuclear power has been perfect. Um, no reactor failure that's led to human harm or, ec or uh, ecological damage. And um, you can't find anybody else who's done the same thing. So anyway, you know, why juxtapose Toyota, Alcoa, and um, the Naval Reactor Program in the same book? It's because they've done the same thing. They've taken what everyone else takes for granted is the constraints, et cetera, and the hazards of a sector. 
disproven that those are actually the limits uh, of that type of work. Yeah. And, you know, this, this idea of a perfect safety track record, um, you know, it makes me think of something Mr. O'Neill talked about a lot, the, the idea, the, 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 the values-based idea that, uh, you know, nobody should ever get hurt when they go to work. I've heard one of his former colleagues say that that had actually evolved to the idea that people should leave work healthier than they were when they arrived in the morning. Yeah. Um, but this idea of thinking of uh, zero harm and, and what he called um, theoretical limits, um, where, where does that fit into, in, in, in your mind, the, the habitual excellence equation? Um, how yeah. important is that and how do leaders best help theoretical limits um, not just become a slogan, but actually turn into something actionable. So there are a couple of things here to unpack. Um, So uh, Paul was an interesting guy in the sense that when you asked him a question, he'd give you an answer. And he wouldn't give you two answers. He'd give one answer in which both the ethical and the rational were um, tightly integrated. Mm -hmm. And I never figured out a way to separate the two. And in my recounting, because I don't have his eloquence, it sounds like they're separate, but they weren't for him. And so this issue about uh, how someone arrives, um, you know, Paul's view was that if uh, someone were willing to give you a day of their life um, to do something that you found valuable, right, you were willing to pay them because what they were doing was valuable to you, then um, you didn't have the right to put them at risk. And um, again, that seems sort of contradictory to the whole idea of creating value through the use of things that are molten metal and, you know, pressures and velocities like we were discussing. But he started there. And then he continued the thought, and which was, if you are um, introducing risk into their uh, into their life and at their well-being, then um, the reason you're doing that, either you're malicious, and, and he didn't characterize himself or his colleagues at Alcoa as malicious, or um, the other possible reason you're introducing the risk is because you simply don't know, you don't know any better. That uh, if, if you knew perfectly about what to do, um, the risk wouldn't be there. Now, just pausing on it, it's really such a profound um, statement because so often, um, people say, well, you know, Mark, you know, you got to understand with all due respect, uh, with all due respect, you know, this is an inherently dangerous thing to do. And Paul's attitude was that um, it's not written into the fabric of the universe that this is a dangerous thing to do. The reason it's a dangerous thing to do is we just don't know how to do it in a way that's not dangerous. And so the reason it's dangerous is that's all we know how to do. And so this led into Paul's uh, set of ideas about how do you persuade people that whatever they're doing, remember I said earlier, you know, what were his core values that uh, everyone matters? Mm-hmm. All right. So someone, you don't have a right to put someone at risk because everyone matters and that things could be much better. So why are they at risk is because you don't know any better. All you know is how to put them at risk. If you didn't, if you knew how to not put them at risk, you wouldn't put them at risk. You know? So anyway, this idea of theoretical um, limits, um, played within the Alcoa, Alcoa environment into um, this pursuit of safety and this uh, sort of impetus to learn. Because Al- Alcoa is obviously a very um, process-intensive uh, company, um, 
a lot of chemistry, a lot of physics. And you can actually do like you did in high school chemistry. You can do your conservation of mass and energy calculations as to how much energy and mass do you have to put in to get, you know, X number of door frames and window frames out or soda cans or whatever else. And so th th there you have what uh, the equation you wrote into your lab book and what the, uh, the accountants told you you actually spent to get your soda can. And it's like, well, you know, you have this much soda can and this much you put in. So where'd all the other stuff go? And the answer was it got dissipated by ignorance. Because if you knew perfectly how to turn energy and material into soda cans, there'd be, all you'd have is soda cans. You wouldn't have this dissipation in value somewhere. So they use this idea of a theoretical limit as a way to keep provoking people and say, you know, if someone said, hey, Paul, Mr. O'Neill, or whomever else, you know, uh, Mark, um, we've, we've optimized this process. They say, all right, well, let's calculate the theoretical limit. And it's like, yeah. Oh, crap. You know, yeah. you never work anywhere. It'd be like saying, oh, this is as fast as it can go. It's like, well, are you at the speed of light? Because that's as fast as you can go. It's like, no, I'm not, no, nowhere near the speed of light. It's like, all right, go back and learn something else. Yeah. So that's how some of those ideas tied together. But, you know, you talk about that mindset of, you know, realize you know, people have this resignation or acceptance that, well, this is a dangerous industry and it's sad. Right. I wish it didn't happen, but it's yeah. dangerous work. And what can you do? What can you do? Well, we don't know yet. As, as right. I think you articulated this really well, we got to do something. Now, you know, maybe I want to talk a little bit about lessons that you might have for healthcare because I think sometimes there is a similar sort of self-defeating mindset of, well, you know, patients are just, it, it's sad and we wish it didn't happen, but some patients are bound to fall or, you know, our patients are sicker and they're bound to get infections. This is nature, this is medicine, this happens. And, and you know, some people I, I know you've run across have, and worked with have realized, well, no, we don't have to just accept that. What can we right. do about it? That's the question. Let's do something, right? Yeah. What are your thoughts for healthcare around this? Right. So, um, There's, I suppose, good reason for people in healthcare to be accepting of the um, imperfections uh, patients and care providers experience in the course of uh, care being provided. Um, the stakes are very high. Sometimes the lead times are very short. Uh, the situations can be very complex. And uh, the situations are fragile. I mean, you're dealing with uh, people who are... Uh, less than in perfect health. And so when things go wrong, um, you have a lot of built-in excuses. Uh, again, you know, the complexity, fragility, lack of lead time, et cetera. Um, but when you start, all right, so I understand the appeal of that argument, but it has two grotesque weaknesses. Um, the first is empirical and the other is uh, sort of uh, word? empirical, not, not theoretical, but anyway, you can, you know, based on reason. So the empirical evidence is that uh, some people have taken those situations which are complex and fragile, et cetera, et cetera, and they've made them perfect. You know, they had central line infections, boom, no central line infections. That was an experience we had working together at Allegheny General Hospital with Rick Shannon. Um, you had surgical site infections, boom, no surgical site infections. That was an, that was an experience or a transformation won by the folks at um, the Pittsburgh VA. 
You had patient falls, patients don't fall anymore. You have uh, bed sores, you don't have bed ulcers, you know, you don't have ulceration anymore. So you have the empirical evidence that um, these things which are taken for granted are um, solvable. But then you sort of get into the logical, well, how is that possible? Well, the thing about these failures which impact the well-being of uh, staff and of patients is that um, no one ever gets hit by a meteorite. It's not like, whoa, where did that come from? When you start doing the, uh, the retrospective, the post-mortem on these things, um, what you discover is that the reason harm was done was the accumulation of a lot of uh, small, regular uh, flaws in the system that in the moment somehow um, amalgamated to create a harmful situation. So a, a bunch of years ago, this guy, Mark Schmidhofer, and I wrote an article in um, Annals of Internal Medicine. The Annals, had, um, yeah, the Annals had done a series of case studies of uh, care gone bad, medical misadventure. It was the guy who went into the emergency department and he literally fell through the cracks for about 10, 12 hours of getting pain untreated. It was a patient who got um, an invasive procedure. Her name was Mrs. Morris. She got one intended for Mrs. Morrison. Uh, there was a, pay, you know, we wrote about a case of a patient who, um, instead of getting uh, a dose of uh, heparin as an anticoagulant on a central line, ended up getting um, several doses of insulin, which ultimately led to her demise. And as we started unt untangled these cases, what we found was um, tolerance for lots of little things which clearly were wrong, but um, because individually they never were severely wrong, people said, ah, oh, well, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. Um, if you pick up the wrong vial of medication, well, put it back, be careful next time. If you uh, get the wrong patient or give the wrong instruction, you know, all right, you know, correct for that in the moment, but be more careful next time. And it turns out be more careful is just a horrendous line of defense. <laughs> it's an awful line of defense. Um, against things going bad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny because you think about um, our immune system, the way our immune system goes, it's, uh, first of all, it sets up barriers against infectious disease, you know, and that's why we have such, you know, resilient skin and we filter air as it goes in through our noses, et cetera, et cetera. And then our immune system uh, work at that moment that uh, um, an infectious agent that the moment it hits our system, you know, and it's just on the periphery, the immune system, it kicks in. It, it, it wants to get it before it has a chance, when it's still just sort of probing before it has a chance to penetrate. We all know if we've had the experience of uh, having a vulnerability, let's say a paper cut, and the infectious agent has uh, penetrated, the immune system reacts to that with swelling, with bleeding, with oozing, whatever else it is, to um, contain the problem. So it, 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 it's sort of an, an odd irony that um, the people in healthcare deal with uh, the object of their intention, these biological systems with these wildly evolved mechanisms for seeing little problems early and addressing them before they have a chance to escalate. And in fact, a lot of medical care, right, is uh, trying to either compensate for the absence of those mechanisms or restore them if they've somehow broken. But then you have these um, organizational systems which don't have the same attributes. And, and not only don't they have the same attributes, there seems to be um, too often a lack of aspiration to have those attributes of a healthy immune system. And so um, anyway, uh, you know, pushing back on that sector, 
one, there's evidence. There's science which says um, much better is possible. And not only much better, but much better and much easier. Uh, the other part is kind of the logic of the argument, which is, um, you know, COVID-19 is a pain in the butt right now. But by and large, you know, if it weren't COVID-19, in the moment we're being uh, attacked by who knows how many billions of microorganisms right now trying to conspire for our demise. And we don't care because we've got immune systems which uh, fend them off. So. But um, you know, what, what would you hope to see ahead of us in healthcare? And I realize you, know, you might have had, you know, I don't know how much that answer changes because of what we've seen happening in healthcare um, with, with COVID-19. But if you had a couple of, maybe a way of asking it is, you know, if you had a couple recommendations for leaders that you wish would be followed widely and diligently, what, what would some of those recommendations yeah. be? You know, actually, Mark, this is entirely thinking out loud, but I hope the, the experience with COVID-19 is an inspiration for what really can be possible. Because you start thinking about this in, in January, you and I had no idea what COVID-19 was. I mean, maybe there was something going on in Wuhan, but did you and I discuss it? I don't think it was part of our conversation. No. And then uh, even in February, um, and I may, I may get the dates and times not exactly precise, but more or less in terms of the flow, Maybe in February, we say, well, man, they, they got a mess in Wuhan. I'm glad I'm not in Wuhan. And, uh, you know, too bad for them. But, you know, good good for us. We don't have that problem. And then, oh, by the way, we're going to, you know, uh, no travel from China. Well, that seems prudent, right? And then, um, then it was like, uh, I remember when this first became part of uh, the president's conversation, um, he was having a Rose Garden or some other kind of press conference and uh, a couple of the guests you know, how they were going to deal with this, you know, and rather than shaking his hand, they elbow bumped him. I mean, and that, that seemed to like the, the, the extremist uh, response to this in the United States. Oh, we're going to not shake hands. We're going to bump elbows instead. And now we've been in two months of lockdown. You know, 20 million people yeah. are out of, out of work. The economy is shut down. We walk down the block and uh, you think people are radiating uh, something. You, you, you don't even look at people, right? You know, I feel like we're in a horror movie now, like that um, – if you, you see the movie, uh, the, the bird box, you know, where this anyway, you know, no, um, but yeah, it's like, Oh, you know, don't look out the window, you know, it might get you. I mean, you know, so th- this thing came on us very quickly. Now you start thinking about what's going on in healthcare, which is, um, confronted with this problem of what is it? What do we do? How do we detect it? How do we treat it? How do we contain it? Da, 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 da. Um, the healthcare community and the public health community have been evolving their understanding at blinding speed, which which is why in January, you know, a lot of people didn't even know where Wuhan was. And here we are in uh, April and May and people are locked inside their homes. And, and you know what? I'm confident by uh, June and July, we'll be out doing something routine in our new normal. So anyway, where, where does that come from? Is that uh, individually and as a community, um, Medical professionals, public health professionals said, we have situations which uh, clearly are suboptimal. Really, they're disastrous. And uh, we don't know what to do. So what we are going to do is rather than just throw our hands up in defeat um, and rather than go back to old routines because they are not adequate, what we're going to do is invent stuff, test it out. The stuff that works, we're going to tell people about it and the stuff that doesn't work. Uh, we're going to not exactly discard it. We're going to say it didn't work, but we've learned something from it not working. And so we're going to move forward. Now, anyway, you start thinking about the learning dynamic that is going to get us from um, 
this severe uh, collapse of the economy in April to what I hope and even have some expectation will be recovery July, August, September. Where does that come from? It's this relentless um, dynamic of discovery. And, and who unleashed and allowed that dynamic of discovery? Is It's the, uh, the leaders in healthcare who said, oh, these are the kind of problems we address. So anyway, you asked me what my hope is coming out of this is that um, they don't let up. They said, you know what? All right, well, COVID-19, we got under control. But uh, wrong side surgery, we don't. Well, let's treat that the same way. And uh, surgical side infection, we don't have that one under control, but let's treat it the same way as COVID-19. Let's, let, let's attack the problem um, uh, with this laser-like focus on learning about it every day. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that is a really inspirational thought around, as you put it, evolving and learning rapidly. I have a friend who's an ER doctor who's said over the last two months, how much the emergency medicine community has learned about responding to patients, how much uh, the, the intensivists and, and the other specialists who are in the ICU have learned and their treatments have evolved rapidly as they've learned. And it sounds like a lot of this happens through um, you know, various networks, you know, formal and informal. Right. And you know, I think you know, back to uh, something you, know, uh, you, you talk about and value capture has learned from you of, you know, we, we, we need to see, solve, and share. And we've seen this massive problem of uh, coronavirus, um, COVID-19, and people are solving things and they're sharing with each other. Right. And it would be great to see more of that related to issues that, that you said that are yeah. still going to be there. Pressure ulcers, hospital-acquired infections, um, post, post-surgical infections, wrong site surgeries, medication, dosing errors. How, how do we evolve and learn rapidly instead of repeating the same mistakes that seem sometimes over and over again? Absolutely. So, so Mark, I think that the, uh, the necessary transition here, and, and you see it in a lot of places where um, people are doing science, and I mean, be kind of quite little on the metaphor. And uh, in order to do science, they got a, uh, a lab bench. And they're like wickedly inquisitive and wickedly experimental on the thing on the lab bench. Now, behind, in order to do the work on the lab bench, there's uh, instruments. And um, while everyone is um, incredibly experimental about the object on the lab bench, some people, not everybody, are experimental about the instrumentation itself. Oh, what if I tune it this way? What if I tweak it that way? What if I uh, try to use it from this different configuration? When you go from the lab bench to the instrumentation to the enterprise, we lose our um, bias towards experimentation. But if the thing on the lab bench is a complex dynamic unknown, and the instrument we're using is a complex dynamic unknown, certainly the enterprise, which is trying to engage the efforts of dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people using all that complex stuff, that's a complex dynamic unknown also. But um, for whatever reason, the people who train up um, in the sciences and in engineering and all these other disciplines which um, advocate for and reward the um, curious mind, as they get further and further and further and further away from the, um, the lab bench and more and more where the responsibility is not the bench or the instrument but the enterprise, mm-hmm the um, bias towards uh, 
experimental inquiry and discovery, it dissipates. And um, I think that's an unfortunate consequence of uh, too many decades of telling managers that their job is to uh, lead by setting objectives or to um, give commands and then audit for compliance or to um, manage by, you know, combination again, setting objectives and having metrics kind of an up or out like with uh, Jack Welsh back in the day. And it's unfortunate because I think it obscures the uh, reality that these uh, social constructs called organizations also have a tremendous amount unknown and a tremendous amount about them, which can be discovered if we had the same inquisitive intent we have for what what's on the bench top or the workbench. So uh, anyway, I, I do hope that um, there's some reminder and some um, recollection coming out of this COVID crisis that uh, this is just how we should conduct ourselves. And it's not just, oh, we're done with that and now back to our routines and uh, which break all the time, but we work around those problems. Well, um, well said and really a lot to think about. So um, thank you, Steve, for thinking out loud and and sharing your thoughts. It's really uh, helpful to hear. Oh, you're quite welcome. And Mark, I do appreciate the chance uh, for you to roll out the soapbox for me to stand on and rant and rave. Um, you know, cause I, I, I've been with my family for the last two months and I think they're kind of a little sick of that from, you know, from their own perspective, but you know, more, more seriously, I, I think the encouraging word here and really channeling, uh, what Paul's beliefs were, which is, um, much better as possible. And we achieve much better, faster, the quicker we are to, um, recognize what we don't know and can't do and, and, and get on with it. And, um, Boy, I'll tell you, he was not a man of excuses, you know, and, and not a man of, um, the word? yeah, excuses. You know, if something was bad, it was bad. And uh, if it was bad, it could, it not only did it need to be fixed, but it could be fixed. So get on with it. And I think uh, there, there's something to be said for that. Well, one, one phrase he used a lot is I've been reviewing um, you know, some of his speeches and recordings, and we're, we're putting some of those into an ebook to capture that for people who want to take it in that way. Um, he would say the the role of leaders is to remove excuses, right? So why you know why? And he, he talked about you know as you alluded to earlier, um, we're going to have zero harm at Alcoa, and people would give him all the reasons why that wasn't likely or wasn't possible, and he'd say, well, the role of leaders is to um, help people eliminate those excuses and and learn how yeah. to figure out that better way. You know, and, and Mark, I, I think that's a great one because. What Paul said could be confused with these uh, stupid cliches, um, but in his case, they were neither cliches nor stupid. So one is, uh, oh, I don't want problems. I want answers. Well, for the manager who says that, who only wants answers, not problems, like, what the hell is your role? Yeah. I mean, if everyone has the answer, why do you even exist? Why do you even have a job? Country club membership. <laughs> I, I think what Paul was trying to get to is um, – he wanted problems, but what he didn't want was you to explain to him why the problem had to exist. Mm-hmm. He, he wanted um, a path forward to make the problem disappear. And the, um, the thing he wouldn't be tolerant of, and he wouldn't allow you, 
was the excuse as to why you couldn't try to move forward. Yeah. And uh, anyway, really different from the cliche it might have sounded like. Yeah. So, um, Steve, thank you again for um, sharing thoughts and reflections here. You know, I do want to mention again for the listeners and the viewers, I um, really do recommend Steve's book, The High Velocity Edge. Um, you can find that on uh, Amazon and uh, fine bookstores. And uh, Steve, if people want to come learn more about your work, how, what's the best place to come find you online? Yeah, um, right now I think the, the best is we've got uh, we've created some tools that support this uh, high-velocity learning dynamic. And um, so we've got a bunch of stuff posted. at uh, The website is uh, www.c2solve.com. Not a lot of creativity on the, the, the browser name, but uh, S-E-E-T-O. S-O-L-V-E, c2solve.com. And uh, there's more information there. That's probably good you didn't get too creative with how to, <laughs> the, the letter C, the number two, the, the ampersand. No. No, no, no. I'm, uh, c2solve.com. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fairly literal, linear person. So um, <laughs> that would have been beyond my capability or my understanding. No. But um, again, uh, our guest is uh, has been Steve Spear. I want to thank everyone for listening and watching. And Steve, thank you for joining us here today. All right, Mark, thank you. And uh, much appreciate you spreading the word about all these good ideas that we often get to discuss. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast. And please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.